3: This is the Performance People podcast with me, Georgie.
1: And me, Ben. This pod is all about people who know about performance.
3: We're going to speak to some of the biggest performers in sport, entertainment, business and politics about how they got there and how they stay there.
1: And we'll talk to those closest to them about all the stuff we didn't already know about them.
3: You can listen to Performance People in the usual places where you get your podcasts or watch us on YouTube. And don't forget, you can always follow us on our Performance People channels.
1: For now, though, here's our latest episode.
3: Joining us on today's performance people are one of the most decorated British Olympian rowers and her adventurer husband.
1: Helen Glover is a double Olympic champion, three times world champion, and the first mum to compete for GB rowing.
3: She's joined by her husband, the explorer, Steve Baxhall, who's faced off against king cobras and dived with great white sharks.
1: Together, they're pretty impressive performance people.
2: I would feel so much more comfortable working with a king cobra than I ever would strongly around a big city at night after closing time.
4: Under pressure is what I kind of, I don't enjoy, but I thrive in. Is there anything you won't do?
2: Uh, I wouldn't do Strictly again.
3: Um, guys, thanks so much for joining us on Performance People today. There's a whole load of stuff that we want to get through with you. Um, but I just want to start in the in one place because I'm obsessed with sharks. So Steve, <laughs> just on the subject of sharks, just what on earth possesses a person to dive outside of a cage with great whites, hammerheads, bull sharks, tiger sharks? I don't understand. Can you explain it to me?
1: Can I just jump in here actually? But Steve, before you answer this, you just got to help me out a little bit here because Georgie is one These people doesn't matter where we are in the world. Looks down into the water. There's sharks in there. I'm not. We can be in a swimming pool. There's a shark
3: in in there. I'm telling you.
2: (laughs) I'm obsessed.
3: I'm obsessed. Fascinated. Phobic. All of the above. But but just tell me what possesses somebody to do what you do.
2: Well, I think just the same as the first time you sail is never going to be in the America's Cup. The first time you dive with a shark, it's never going to be a great white. I I dived with my first shark when I was 12, and it was probably about two and a half feet long and was a black-tip reef shark. And over the years, I started diving with lemons and Caribbean reef and grey reef. Uh, And you get to learn a lot about a shark's body language, about the situations and the environments where it can be safe to dive with sharks. And conversely, the things that you look for, uh, which are negative things. So uh, poor water quality, um, food in the water, um dusk and dawn when they're likely to be more active and over time you get to learn their rhythms it it took me 20 years to work up to being able to dive out the cage with a great white and there are still lots of situations where I would look at the the environment and say no way not today but if you get it right then it can be as safe as diving alongside a sea lion or a dolphin you see I just don't buy it I don't. B- I don't believe you. From the experts, <laughs> so,
3: fills, fills me with complete fit. This morning, in order to sort of work up to our our, our chat with you guys, I put on the uh, telly and I I prized our daughter Bellatrix away, away from LOL the movie, which is her current obsession that she has to watch twenty four seven. And I prized her away from that and said, "You're going to actually watch this program because these are the these are the people that we're chatting to today, Bellatrix, and they're fascinating and they do this and they do that." And she sort of she pulled her eyes up from her. From her screen was looking at the TV, and she said, "Well, mummy, I just think he's just Mr. Risky Pants, isn't he?" <laughs> that was her take. Mr. Risky Pants. <laughs> but I mean, but 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 on the subject of risk, I mean, to me, it does seem like a huge risk to, to dive with sharks. But on the subject of risk, I mean, that your whole being must have changed massively in your approach to diving with sharks and coming face to face with king cobras and anacondas and whatever it might be through virtue of your shows Um, since you've had children right because I mean we all become a little bit you know different with our approach to risk when we've had kids that must have changed for you guys
2: yeah I mean my my whole life has always been one big long risk assessment and I have to say that working with animals I would say that's the safest part of my job by a long way Um, and particularly with things like snakes, which are inherently predictable, cold-blooded animals that have very set patterns to the way they live their their days, I would feel so much more comfortable working with a king cobra than I ever would strolling around a big city at night after closing time. And so yes, I have changed the way that I deal with risk, without question since I've become a dad. And, you know, Hells and I have talked an awful lot about where we go from here and, but, but more to me, the problem is how much time I spend away because kids change so fast. You know, we just dropped our little boy off um, for his first day of school this morning. And it seems like yesterday that he was, he was learning to crawl. And if you go away for a six-week or a two-month expedition, you come back and they are totally different people and they're not good at you being away for that length of time. So that's been the big thing for us, hasn't it? It's been figuring out what happens now. What What is the future for what I do for a living?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that's something I can, I can certainly um, relate to being away with these different sailing projects. And it's tough, isn't it? As you, the kids are growing up and you feel like you're missing out. But how, how have you... How are you both changing your the number of projects that you take on to to try and fit that around and work the diaries around so someone's always at home or are you, you're both at home together as much as possible?
4: Yeah, kind of. I think probably it's more that the first question we ask whenever anything comes in is the first question we ask is will it take me away from the kids? And then the second question we ask is how does it physically work with childcare? Like it, it suddenly you realise your life is just. Way less spontaneous, especially for me. You can't just go, yes to everything, and I'll be there tomorrow. I'll get on that flight, and you realise that everything has to just be so much more practical than it ever was. <laughs> and um, I'm not great at kind of planning and logistics. Um,
3: that is
2: the understatement of the century. <laughs> Can I just say?
4: I
3: would have thought, I thought you two of all people would have been amazing at planning and logistics on the basis that, you know, your lives are one big muddle with planning and logistics with three young children, expeditions, training routines, all that kind of stuff. I mean, how is that not really well organized?
4: Yeah, it's called winging it. We, uh, Yeah, we're basically a mess that just gets through each day, don't we? It's okay. excuse
2: me, <laughs> speak for yourself. Um, I, I, Hel- Helen is exceptional at any kind of planning that is to do with what she does and the, her ability to... I, I cannot imagine there is anyone in the world who would be able to do what she does in terms of sometimes you get two hours sleep in a night because, you know, the kids have been kicking off or someone's been sick or whatever... And she'll still be up at six o'clock in the morning and be on the water and do that, you know, hour and a half, two two hour long session. That kind of drive is, is second to none. But when it comes to the minutiae of normal life, that's not her strong point. Um, but it, it, it is it is mine and I'm much better at organising stuff, right? And, and I think, you know, we, we just kind of like battle together to kind of find a way. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't.
3: Yeah, well, that's why you're such a good partnership, isn't it? I, I said to Ben last night, um, right, I'm going to go to bed early and then tomorrow morning, could you please just deal with Fox first thing because he'll need his milk and he normally wakes up at about six-ish and could you just do with that? Because I'm just going to go and spend like, you know, half an hour on the cross train. I've decided to get myself back in shape and do my fitness. So I said, I just want to go and do that. Of course, like 10 past seven comes this morning and have I stepped into the area where the cross trainer is? No, I absolutely have not done that so where does that sort of that willpower come how do I be more like Helen like where can I find that willpower to sort of make myself be a better person every day and start the day much better than I did this morning
4: it's such a tricky question and I think it's something that I've actually got better at since having kids because I've, I definitely deal best under pressure Where I remember even at school I was someone who would leave leave it to the last minute for homework or for deadlines or for something like that under pressure is what i kind of i don't enjoy but i thrive in and so I, I definitely find if i have all the time in the world i won't really use it but if i have one slot in the day and i know if i don't train now i won't get another chance because because the kids will need me then i will train and i, th- I think almost forcing myself into the situation where i if i know i lose that opportunity it's gone Works best for me because otherwise you're just relying on motivation, and that's
2: something that's just quite fickle. Something that I I learned from Helen, a very practical thing that I never realised before, is what she does as an athlete. Is the very, very first thing in the morning she'll do something that peaks her testosterone particularly, right? So you're doing things that kind of get the the hormones, adrenaline, etc racing so it might be very first thing in the morning doing something like getting into a punch bag or throwing a slam ball or, or doing anything <laughs> that gets those uh, hormones moving and you might totally not feel like it you might be you know still in the midst of the last night's sleep fog, but within a couple of minutes all of a sudden your body's like oh yes this is what I'm supposed to be doing and and it makes a difference not just to being able to train first thing in the morning but to the whole of the rest of your day would you say that's that's fair
4: yeah I mean that's more for like for racing or for intensity you kind of you do that and you get your hormones peaked but it's definitely true that I think setting expectations for me has always been a really important thing if I if I start a training session thinking this is going to be two hours long that's that's really intimidating (laughs) whereas if I think 20 minutes is better than zero minutes I'll probably get 20 minutes and carry on you know i think keeping it really simple and manageable and, and then you do get that feeling that real feel good that real um bars that motivation of having achieved something and then it makes you yeah in a better mood for the rest of the day yeah
1: i can, I can relate to that I would, again having having kids and suddenly you don't have all day to train like you used to when you're doing an olympic campaign right really and 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 trying to just do something is 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 key, isn't it? Really, because it's so easy to put it off. Say, oh well, I, I can't do the full. You know, I wanted to do a two-hour bike ride or whatever it is. I can't do it, so I'm just, you know, my whole plan's written off. Just committing to doing something. I think that's key, and, and most yeah, people in that it's aren't so they, true. Really, That with their everyday lives that they, they, they don't have the time. So just trying to get something done.
3: How, how are you not permanently distracted by that? How can you focus on what you need to do with that going on around you? I mean, I'm thinking in particular of lockdown because we were in that sort of very strange period of time where that had to be the case. But I mean, how, how on earth? I mean, on an Instagram image, I, I can see that looks absolutely incredible. But in practical terms, what does that feel
4: like? I think the most important thing I had to do was tell myself two things. One, this will not be the same as normal training. I'm not in a centre of excellence where, you know, you don't have babies crawling on you and you have scientists standing behind you. And two, the reason I'm doing this, one of the big, big things I'm achieving is not just the physical training, but it's what you're showing your kids. And if you're showing your kids by being inclusive and picking them up and not telling them to go away, but actually including them, then actually my role as a role model is is being achieved. Um, I feel like it, yeah, it definitely kind of shifted my... My focus when I was training—I used to be the most kind of absolute blinkers on, focus. Nothing could, nothing could get into my zone. And now I kind of welcome that because it shows. It reminds me that that there's more to sport. There are bigger things in life, but it's still a really great part of life that I'm lucky to do. So, I
2: mean, a, a classic example would be last night after we got the kids down, um, we had our sort of like decompress, put the television on. But while that was happening, Helen was in front of the television doing her yoga stretches and I was sat on the sofa doing my freediving diving breathing exercises. So we, we actually spent a good 45 minutes that, you know, we were watching the telly but doing something positive at the same time. Um, and that probably sounds like absolutely. We do have evenings. Uh, where we my just my watch version TV of that well. <laughs> is watch, My version of that, guys, is that I can
3: watch the telly and shop online at the same time.
4: <laughs>
3: That's my oh, version I was of doing multitasking. i doing the I so yoga. Need to
0: it.
1: Look, it's some serious multitasking going on. It just depends what your priorities are. It's, it's oh, okay. You're
3: making me feel terrible. You really are, Steve. Just talk to us about that period where Helen decided that she was going to go once again for the Olympics in Tokyo because. I mean, this to me is just astounding as a mum and everything else. And I I know it must get boring sometimes, Helen, to have to constantly refer to this sort of pre- and post-period of Olympic career that you've had before children and after children. But to me, as a a mum, it's fascinating to think that you would sort of say, "Okay, well... I've, I've, I've achieved great things. I've got two Olympic goals. Well, I've, I actually can list it. Two Olympic goals, triple world champion, quintuple world cup champion, quadruple European champion, British champion in both women's fours and quadruple skulls. You have got so many accolades. It's not like you need another, but what makes you think halfway through lockdown, actually, I want to do this again?
4: I mean... For me, I I think it was the the strangest thing was the fact that after Rio, I had really said goodbye to the sport and i would spent four years not as an athlete. And
2: You hadn't rode, had
4: you? I hadn't rode. And and there's this really unique, I'm sure, Ben, you might have kind of recognised this. You get this sense of on the new year of the Olympic year, as that new year chimes in, you tell yourself, this is Olympic year. And in 2020, the bells chimed and it was the first time in eight years I hadn't said, this is my Olympic year. And I I genuinely sat there thinking, oh, like, I can't wait to watch my friends and teammates racing. And I was sat there nine months pregnant about to have the twins. And then in 2020, had the twins and then a few weeks later was in lockdown and, it, it, I was a world away from being that Olympic athlete that I was you know, ready to watch on the sofa that summer. And then when they made the announcement about the, the Games being moved for a year, and I had I just had Kit um, and Bo, and I looked at Bo, my little girl, and I just thought, I, I could show you, I could physically show you something different. No woman in the British rowing team has ever gone back and done this. And it it started to feel like the only way anyone was ever going to do it was going to be off on their own terms. The setup wasn't there for women to, to, to achieve that and get back on the team. Everyone's in their living rooms training right now on a level playing field. Um, I, I just, I mean, it was, it was probably a bit of that thing where we were all in lockdown. Everyone was Kind of doing weird things, and I look back now. And I think that was a really weird thing to do to but decide to go to another Olympics with a year's training. But it was something in seeing my kids, seeing the opportunity, and just going. Just I just got to give it a go.
1: But Helen, just to explain to people a little bit about how tough rowing is. I mean, I know a little bit about it through you know um, people meet, meeting different rowers through, through um, Olympic experiences. But it's I think it's the toughest sport out there in terms of the training that you have to put in? I mean, just tell us a little bit about what that looks like.
4: Yeah, I mean, the physical race is hard and it hurts. It's about a seven-minute race and it's pure pain. But like you say, it's mainly the the background of the training that goes behind it. Um, you're training three times a day, six, seven days a week. Um, we'd often get a Sunday off every three weeks. And it's just the monotony. You, you don't miss sessions, you don't miss days. And it's... Um, maybe a couple of hours in the water, a couple of hours in the gym, and then an hour on the rowing machine every day, getting the recovery she, she with throws, that.
2: She throws that away. But anyone who's ever been on a rowing machine, you know, I, I, I've done a bit of that since since we've got together. and we might, I might get on for seven minutes, ten minutes, and come out at the end and be brutalised. And Helen will go faster than me and be on there for an hour and a half. And that is one of her three sessions in the day. The other yeah. session, she might do a marathon distance on the water and then get off and do an Olympic weights session that puts the the the, the powerlifters to shame. Or well, not not powerlifters oh, <laughs> I mean, take the, 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 it the prize. It's, it's insane. <laughs> it's insane. You're, you're right. <laughs> you it's know, the toughest thing you can insane. do. It is insane. It is insane. And everybody yeah. from the other sports that season, the cyclists train train alongside them and go, "What are you doing?" And and they do that day in, day out. They don't take any time off. It's brutal.
4: But that's so why it was Steve, an you watch to do it, do
2: it from that. home. Yeah, yeah. I watched all of that, and I, you know, e- even just seeing her do one single two K test on the ergo, it, it, it hurts me because you can see the amount of pain that she's putting herself through, and that is just, you know, one of three sessions in a in a day. It's it's crazy. I I thought that I was a, a sporty person. I thought I was a c- competitive person until I met Helen, and I realised that I was not in her world. but steve so you're watching
3: all this unfold obviously and 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 i think you've described it before as you sort of thought oh god because you saw something change in her eyes when when it was announced that the games was going to be delayed by a year (laughs) what what was that feeling like did you was it almost instantaneous you knew that she was just gonna do this thing it was just the perfect perfect sort of red flag
0: yeah
2: yeah i I mean you know uh, helen literally had not been in a rowboat. She had not sat on the rowing machine for four years. And so the first time she did in lockdown, I thought, oh, here we go. And at the same time as kind of thinking, this is absolutely massive. Like Helen says, you know, we were all seeking to try and find meaning out of that period of time when everything was in upheaval. And the very first word, the very first adjective you used was fascinating. And it it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see what she could do and achieve on her own, without a coach, without a nutritionist, without anyone even writing a programme for her in the front room. It was fascinating to see an athlete re-emerge from someone who'd just given birth to twins. And to see that happen so quickly, you know, six weeks she was already back in incredible shape. Six months she beat her PB on the rowing machine without having had any input from anybody else and I I mean I was as proud seeing that as I was watching her win gold in 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 Rio because to have done that completely off her own back with her own determination was something really really special.
1: Uh, It's it's incredible but but Helen what actually drove you to it I mean I know you said no one had done it having kids and then come back but is that what really drove you or was it the fact that people thought there was a perception that you couldn't do that or yeah, you just point. missed out, yeah. you missed the games and you wanted to be back in the games?
4: Um, I think a little bit of everything. And then I think the more you get the sense that people think you can't and people think it's crazy and impossible, the more you think, well, I'll show you
0: then. <laughs> yeah.
4: And then I think a big shift was when I made the announcement and it was about six, I'd been training for six months, it was six months to the games And the big shift was the response. I I made the announcement and then I just did that thing of not turning on any social media, not looking at anything, not reading any messages. And a couple of days later, did. And it was so positive. And it was parents. It was mums, dads, carers, grandparents, all people who were like, you know, we're behind you. You're doing this for us. We're so proud that, you know, And, and it was just... I've never had those people support me before. It was always sports fans and rowing fans who were really interested. And it was this, it was this demographic of peop- people who felt really represented. And that really changed my motivation because I was like, this is, this is really exciting and it's so nice to represent something that's just a little bit different.
1: Oh, absolutely, you're doing it for so many more people all of a sudden, not just the hardcore rowing fans and Olympic fans, but every yeah. parent out there. It's, it's what, inspirational.
3: What about your kids? What about your kids? I mean, what, what what do you think their perception of it will be in years to come? You know, what, what's the great takeaway for them, do you think?
4: I mean, right now they couldn't care less and they, they have no idea. And I really hope that it's... A, I think it's something that will grow with time. And I'm sure when they're older, we'll look back. And I think it'll be nice because they'll always be able to say, you know, my mum was an Olympic champion, but for them to have been along for the ride for one of the Olympic games is something I think really nice that actually it wasn't just a a pre them life and then they were born it was there's a kind of continuation of sport through their lives and I I hope it will make them feel more part of of my sporting career
3: talk to us a little bit about just just how important you think it is for children and their mental health as much as anything having come through lockdown um, to get them outdoors and to enjoy enjoy the outdoors
4: i think for their for their mental physical health it's really important um, we just see through our children that they're happier easier um, just they're just brighter versions of themselves when they're outside um, and i think it's really easy for us especially as two outdoorsy people to kind of sit there and say yeah get them outside all the time and take them on kayak trips but we also appreciate it isn't that easy and that like you say there's 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 time and places for for screen time and and time indoors and there's time and places where to go outside is the best thing and that's why we actually wrote Wildlings it's because it's actually accepting and appreciating it isn't all that easy just like everything in parenthood it's just nice to have a manual nice to be able to open a book and turn a page when you're a tired parent and say this is what we do and this is how we do it let's go and we thought, well, if we're struggling, especially at the end of lockdown, we're struggling for ideas and things to do with them, then I'm sure everybody else is. And so, um, yeah, I guess it was like our little way of kind of being able to give give back a little bit about our ideas.
2: We have a lot of advantages that we, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a, a rural environment. We have the river right next to us. We have countryside just over the way. We both had um, families who encouraged us as children to be outside all the time. I've been working with kids and wildlife and adventure for 20 years you, you know we have a, a certain repos- repository of experience and knowledge that does make it easier for us and we were still struggling ourselves so you know there were a lot of friends that we had who live in cities who might not have gardens might not have their own outdoor spaces and for them the challenge was was huge and during that period of lockdown lockdown because our time outside was rationed to us it became more precious and everyone wanted to, to suck the last morsel after, out of every second they had outside. And, and so, yeah, we, we kind of got together. It was, it was Helen's idea originally, but then we, we got together, wrote a book together without getting divorced, which has to be a positive. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great.
1: That's a great. It's a great idea. So come on, tell us, what, what are a few of the key tips then for families that don't, you know, don't often get out into the countryside, but they get the chance and they don't want to mess it up because get it wrong and you put the kids off for quite a long time. So You're thinking, what of, you're be thinking, thinking of
3: specifically of sailing here. It's because we constantly talk about when's the right time to put Bellatrix and Fox in a boat where they won't hate Ben. So it's sort of a, like a, we're trying to work <laughs> out, aren't we, kind of what, what the best thing is to do so that we don't...
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
3: Put them off for life. That's a Bel- bit harsh. that well, no, work well, fairness, Bellatrix has actually taken to it quite well recently, hasn't she? She's got quite into it lately. She
1: has. But we don't get, we don't get out that often. But the point on is, if you terms. don't get out that often, what should you do? Because you don't want to make a mess of it and ruin the kid's experience.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: I think I think that's really true. And I, I think it's very important that you don't put too much pressure on it and that sometimes yeah. it is okay just to wander outside without any agenda and just have complete freeform play in the outdoors and for them not to feel like they are being pushed into doing anything particularly if it's one of your passions i can see how that would be an issue for you it certainly was for us in getting them on the water in in canoes and kayaks and paddle boards the second you start pushing it as your thing is the second you you feel very active resistance for them from them so quite often it's been like subtle tricks of Finding ways that it's their idea, and finding ways in, in which there are extra things they could be achieving. We're off on a pirate quest looking for treasure. That we're we're off to to you know tag a list of five different things that they have to see on this particular canoe trip, and after a while it starts to become a very natural thing. It was just everybody in the big red canoe, and we're off up the river
3: we are in a very straight system here aren't we in the uk with regards to education there isn't much room for sort of um you know either side of that of that conversation um so I, I i don't know i just wonder whether you know we'll feel as our children grow up whether they're they're in the best setup really in terms of a of an educational system to sort of progress oh the amazon deliveries <laughs> arrived on that on that very on that very serious <laughs> note about the future of our planet and our and our children hang on a sec <laughs> i'm to get em's gonna get it <laughs> um let's carry on while they're while we're figuring out whether the trainers have arrived for school um but do you see what I mean <laughs> on that subject? I'm waffling around it. But what I mean is, is that we have we have a very set educational system in this country. You know, does it work for everyone? I'm not sure it necessarily does, because you more high performance people you speak to haven't necessarily bene- benefited from that.
4: Yeah, totally. I think, and for me, I guess, so I came into rowing when I was 21. I didn't meet rowing at all because of the education I went through, because of I I mean, I grew up in a small fishing village in Cornwall and went to the local school, um, ended up going to university and becoming a PE teacher. And nothing would have led me down the path of becoming an Olympian. It was a concept so foreign to me. It was a dream. It was a dream that happened to other people who lived in the bright lights and big cities. And it it wasn't going to happen to me. And then uh, London um, won the bid for the Olympic Games in 2012 and they uh, ran a campaign called Sporting Giants and I was tested, physically tested and measured and told you could be a good rower. And that is the thing, that is the, the crossroads in my life that led me to being an Olympian. And yeah, there was there was nothing, there was nothing in my trajectory until that moment, until I was just lucky enough to be involved in this campaign that was going to get me there. And so many people I met on the team and Olympians I met other ways. You're, you're so right didn't get there through these kind of classic formal routes of just normal education. But so you've had, had to be outliers. I, I, I need to ask you Helen to about be this because,
1: Helen, I, I also grew up in Cornwall, not so far away from you. I, I was on the Fowl mm-hmm. Estuary. And I've thought about this a lot as well. And do you think there was perhaps something about the fact that, you know, don't we me on Cornwall is an, an amazing place to live and grow up. It's so beautiful. But like you say, it's not London. It's not the rest of the country. There isn't a huge amount going on in Cornwall. So the fact that you had this opportunity to do something really special, you jumped on that perhaps more than you would have done if you'd grown up in and around London and you had so many other yeah. opportunities and, and distractions.
4: Totally. It was like someone was handing me this golden ticket and I was going, who me? Like stuff doesn't happen to people like me. And yeah, you're so right. You you grow up in a place with you you don't see it at the time, but it's full of opportunity. It's, the most beautiful place you've got the, the amazing things around you but you don't have the infrastructure of the centres of excellence of the places no. that people who go on and do great things go to and that's the thing I try to say whenever I go back home whenever I go into schools um especially rural, rural schools is to say you you can sit here and be anything you want and do anything you want don't let where you are be uh, a negative it's, it's the biggest positive positive. But you do have to be maybe more proactive about going out and finding the right people to speak to, the right places to go, because you don't just stumble on them. And when I was younger, I did. I just told myself, people from London, do London seemed like the centre of the world. And it was <laughs> people from London are, are the Olympians and are the athletes and are the actors and are the singers. And that's not me. So, And I just didn't realise how wrong I was.
3: But you're both basically outliers, right? You're both basically, you've, you've, you've identified that the system is not going to do it for you and you're going to have to do it some other way. An opportunity comes along and you grab that opportunity. So uh, is that a mindset thing? Is that because of the people you naturally are or is that because of your circumstance? I don't know. It's this nature nurture piece, isn't it?
4: yeah driven but then you get the opportunity and the two the two go together and you think I'm I'm driven to find my thing this might be my thing I'm gonna make it happen what on
3: earth are you two gonna be like at sports day (laughs) (laughs) because we're terrible by the way and I just talk about sport I don't do it as well as obviously you guys do (laughs)
4: The other mums were telling me that at nursery sports day I should turn up in my GB track suit and get my spikes on.
1: We went to a local school. Talked... To <laughs> Helen. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can talk about this. Yeah, uh, I can. might get we into went, trouble. No, no, it's fine. Uh, we went, go on. Well, so we went, we went, we were looking at a school locally for Bellatrix <laughs> a couple of years ago. And uh, I said, oh, well, you know, it's great because sports day, the parents get really yeah. engaged. Really engaged. He said, well, yes, it was fine until um, M- Mo Farah turned up for the egg and spoon race. race. <laughs> <laughs> so. And you're
4: like, she's not going here. That's not too competitive. I I want to win
3: sports day. But that's an interesting point. So competitive. So that that other piece about um, the competitive nature in sport, as opposed to just taking part. I mean, where, I think I probably know the answer to this, although I'm not totally sure. What side of the fence are you on on that? Because these days in schools, it's very much driven into the psychology that taking part is everything. Um, We certainly went to visit this particular school, which Ben's talking about, um, and then panicked based on the fact that you might end up in a race with Mo Farah. But, but one of the questions <laughs> leading to that conversation was, you know, are you all about the taking part or are you about, you know, teaching the school of hard knocks, which is winning and losing, right? Like how, how you know, how, where do you sit on that? Where do, where do you guys sit on that?
4: Do you know what? We didn't actually ask Logan School that question. I don't know why we didn't because it's really interesting. I think that... I sit somewhere in the middle. I wouldn't say like Logan, who's the older one. He's not particularly competitive, and I I, I think he would do really well from an environment that was more nurturing and less hard win lose. But then again, he needs to experience it because he's going to go into the real world. um And the twins, I would say, they compete all the time, don't they? And they thrive in that win lose environment. So I think it had to be a mix because the children are a mix of a mix of personalities, aren't they?
3: Mm. No, it's true. And
4: in terms of um
3: so we talked earlier about Steve going away on these mad expeditions and and the risk factor maybe the risk um, assessment now being being obviously greater because there are there are little ones at home. How do you feel Helen when he goes off to do these things where he faces off with a king cobra or a black mamba or whatever it might be? I mean, what, what what's running through your mind when he's he's off doing these various
2: trips?
4: <laughs> yeah, I normally wish I was along there with him because it's just like Dream trips—they sound, they just sound amazing. She I thinks think... she
2: could do it better than me. <laughs> is is reading between the lines? She's so just like, I'd, I'd be so much better at that. No,
4: than no. I think the thing that um, everyone says, do you worry? And the thing that stops me worrying is that I see the research Steve does, and he will sit there and he will not only um, learn about the environment and the terrain and and the you know the map of the country. He will learn the language. He'll go to the detail of learning the locals' language, the local dialect, the um, social structures of the place where he's going. And even if he's going in search for animals, you know that he's going to interact with the society, that he's going to know what the animals... I, I feel like when you see someone being that thorough, you know they're going to be as safe as they can be. It's not... If I was going to do that, I would probably get on a plane and go, Al! I'll be fine, so so I think it would I would put myself into danger doing that through just lack of preparation, but he's really prepared.
3: Has it ever gone wrong, Steve? Have you ever not prepared and it's fallen
2: over um it, It's gone wrong quite a lot of times, um but probably not not so much down to lack of preparation as as just you know every single day. Is different every single day. Things happen which uh, you could never prepare for. That is the joy of the job, and so often gives you the the, the greatest encounters, the greatest experiences, and things that y- you would never dare to dream could happen. You know, the, the moments when you walk out of the rainforest to find a, a waterfall that doesn't occur on any map, and doesn't have a name and nobody's recorded ever having seen before those those moments that you could never plan for are balanced out with the moments where you find yourself paddling into a canyon with a class five rapid in it that you was weren't expecting you know you you can't you you have to take the rough with the smooth and yes there have been some um some pretty sketchy moments over the years but then considering how long i've been doing this and that it is day in day out actually uh, Far fewer than people might expect. Is there anything you won't do? Uh, I wouldn't do strictly again. <laughs> <laughs> that's good probably shout. the most terrifying that's a
3: good of all. That's probably the most so. terrifying of all experiences, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Put them yeah, up against I mean, a I mean, great wife any day, but <laughs> um,
2: I, I reserve the right on any single day. Um, with any single animal or any single challenge to be able to look at it and say to the team, no matter how much work we've done, preparing for it, building up to it, no matter how important it is to the programme or to the expedition, to say no. And everybody else on the team has to know that they have that ability too. And that can be with something relatively simple. You know, there have been times when I've been... um, catching a tarantula which I've done a thousand times before and I've looked at the one particular animal thought no that one's going to bite me and I'm not going to do it this time and I need to be able to know that I have the support from the team around me to, to to enable that security to happen and if I have that security then I can feel free to do things that that might seem insane to many other people because we've ticked all the right boxes we're working together as a team of people who really know what we're doing and you know with that in mind um there, no, there's not something that I definitely would not do.
4: No, the thing that's, if one thing scared me, now we're talking about it, I do think that cave diving is the thing that, because they've got that claustrophobic, claustrophobic underground element and then fill it with water. And I think that I, I kind of figure you can, or Steve can, paddle or climb or walk his way out of anything, but you can't beat the elements if you're underground. In in a cave system in the water, and something goes wrong, it could be like a, a torch battery failing, or or, you know, or somebody becoming ill underwater, and that scares me because I think if it's controllable, I feel like he could do it, but when the elements take over, I I I find that that element that's probably the most scary environment. If I know he's he's off, um, yeah, cave diving, that's that's scary.
3: That's exactly how I feel about Ben and sailing. It's exactly the same thing. I feel like if you're sailing in an arena setup, where you've got to go from one mark to the other, to the other, to the other and back again or whatever it is. I know it's more complicated than that, but I'm simplifying it for the purposes (laughs) of the conversation. But if you actually had to do an (coughs) offshore race or go and do something like that where you're having to every day deal with different environmental concerns and issues that might crop up. That's the bit I don't like so much. That's the bit I think, oof, I don't know if I'd be quite as comfortable with that. Because I get the same question to me asked as you, as you obviously do. Like, do you worry about any of it? And I don't worry when I know that the preparation's been done. But I worry about things like when you're testing that America's Cup boat for the first time and no one's been on it before and things like that, you know, just to sort of um, prove prove um prove the modeling and things like that i don't i don't like that bit i'm okay with the racing bit just so we're clear
1: okay it's good it's good to know you've been paying attention on what the courses are (laughs) bit to bit to bit there to
3: there to there to
1: yeah yeah but no you're right avoid landing rocks
3: yeah
1: avoid other boats as well yeah probably we haven't done a good enough job on either of those fronts recently but um no you're right i mean it's the same isn't it preparation steve talked about the preparation that's absolutely key and Having a really good team around you, good teammates and everyone knowing what they're supposed to be doing. And if something does go wrong, you know, having the procedures in place to react, that, that, that's key.
3: I just want to quickly get um, your thoughts, both of you, on climate change, because you're both in and around the elements the whole time. You talk about being in the outdoors a great deal. Um, you, mu- you must have very strong opinions on, you know, what's happening to the state of our planet and what sort of a, a planet our children are going to inherit. Um, what, what, do you, what is your take on that currently?
2: well oh, crumbs it's, it's massive I, i've made two or three whole series on, on climate change in fact my first my first whole series on climate change was in 2005 but the first program i made was in the year 2000 and back then the world-class uh climatologists meteorologists glaciologists that i was working with people with brains the size of a planet were saying so the next Ten years are going to be the warmest we've ever had on record. We're going to see one point five degrees uh, increase in temperature. We're going to see this amount of parts per million CO two increase. Um, the time for talking is over. The time for action is now. We know it's ha- that was in the year two thousand, and we're still saying the same things now. And I, I think that the real, the one real positive that I got out of COP at the end of last year, which I was lucky enough to to go to both the blue and the green zones of and to to really, you know, see and feel the energy that now is being driven towards proper solutions, is that there was never any climate science denial. That was, that just didn't happen. Nobody was even mentioning it. It wasn't mentioned on the news. It wasn't mentioned in the media. It, It was all, okay, finally, we're going to engage with this at least 20 years too late. But there, there are still real positive things we can do. We just need to get that that era of questioning whether it's actually happening behind us. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of the media outlets. I think Sky actually was the first one to, to say, we are going to stop having climate science deniers on our screens. We are not going to feel the need every time we have someone who is, you know, talking about the facts and what we do about it, feeling the need to balance that out with someone saying that it isn't even a thing. Um, So, yes, I I mean, I do feel that finally we're getting a hold of how we engage with it. And at the same time, as we are really seeing and feeling the effects, uh, you you know, in real time, this, this summer has been the first time that you've actually seen meteorologists who are prepared to say, this weather event you're experiencing right now is because of climate change. Two years ago, three years ago, they would feel the need to say um, in all likelihood there are mitigating factors from climate change that make it possible that this event is going to become more serious. And you'd have to put all those qualifiers in. And and now the scientists aren't doing that. They're saying the reason we have had the hottest summer on record equals hottest summer on record is because of climate change. Full stop. And we need those um, hardline objective facts as as an uneducated populace, we need to to not be hearing it in science speak. We need to hear it definitively in order to wake up to the reality of it.
1: No, oh, you're absolutely right. But what do you think about the role of government in all of this? Because any democratically elected government is they they they're struggling, aren't they, to be able to implement the change that's that's necessary. Yeah, how can we get across that line so that Yes you know, they they can actually make the changes that they're going to to make, you know.
2: And globally as well. Get it across
1: the line on a global scale, yeah.
2: Without question, we have an awful lot of talk about personal responsibility and not enough talk about how this has to be driven forward by big business and it has to be driven forward by by politicians and by governments. And moving away from the very Big decisions that have to be made at the heart of government, in in terms of uh, how we generate our electricity, how we how we use it, um, and how we make sure that that we are taking the most from the companies that pollute the most and that expel the, the most carbon gases, to make sure that they they are they are making right on their wrongs, um, and these are all things that have to come from government. And they will come from government when government know that it's important to us, the people that are electing them. So, so yes, you know, climate change, I'm not saying for a second that climate change has to be the most important thing on the agenda of our government or of us as a populace, but it needs to shift up our list of priorities significantly because pretty soon it's going to be at the root of all of our problems.
3: Let's end on a high note, which is... Um, what we like to do every, every time we speak to people in, the, in this podcast, guys, is to ask them for um, a nugget that um, people can take away into their everyday lives, like a performance tip. So I sort of want to ask both of you, Helen, maybe you first, um, what can people do every day to perform better? And same to Steve after.
4: Oh, um, I would say, say um, almost don't uh, t- take the time you have so if you've got 10 minutes to do something do 10 minutes of it and never think it's only 10 minutes so i won't bother so take the time you have it doesn't have to be the person next to
2: you oh that was was I that was yours gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: who's 10 minutes yeah, yeah, is it that's that's, that's
2: definitely <laughs> i would say i know i know
0: that's
2: that's the thing that i've learned most from from helen about about training and about personal improvement has been exactly that I very much have a tendency to go oh I've only got 10 minutes what's the point of training Helen will say I've got 10 minutes I can I can do 10 minutes which you know over the course of the day or the week or the month is going to add up and it does make a huge huge difference um my my tip would be start the day well whatever you do start the day with a good healthy breakfast um I, I would say that having a Green smoothie first thing in the morning, full of vegetables, full of all the things that you know your body needs, forcing that down will make you feel through the rest of the day that you've you've ticked the diet box relatively well. And it just starting the day with hopefully a little bit of stretching or training, starting the day with a positive statement makes a massive difference to how you continue that day and how you feel through it. And as a morale boost and as a a drive to do better in your day, how you start. Is to
1: me huge. That's great. That's great advice. I'm gonna take that, and I'm gonna <laughs> say I would have taken down Mo Farah in that kid's running race
3: <laughs> if your dad is green smoothie. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> and done a few we stretches. We believe in you, ben. Helen. I just <laughs> want to get it officially on record: Paris or not Paris? That's the question.
4: Um not paris right now i'm not i'm not training right now i haven't retired i mean there's always that like little monkey on your shoulder Uh, but uh, possibly no no no, i'm
0: not training right now steve's
2: face is like
0: no not
2: again you can't put me through this again you're right get
1: right behind it steve come on (laughs) i
2: just love that you're asking i just i I love that you're asking well people don't seem to ask and you need a definitive answer
4: right right well, no. Do you know what? Do you know what is so cool is that um, until the day I had Logan, so I, I, after Rio, every journalist said to me, "Are you, you going to carry on?" And then I had Logan, and I wasn't ever asked again if I was retiring. It was like a, it was having a baby was a statement of retirement. I think it's so cool that people are now going, are "You going to do another one." <laughs> so yeah, it shows that times have changed.
3: Okay, so are you going to or not? I really want the exclusive on this.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I, I have no intention, uh, no contact with British Rowing about going back. I'm not training. um, So yeah, I'm doing like, I'm doing at the moment a beach sprint rowing, which is just a much more fun type of rowing Um, the whole event is about two and a half minutes long so you don't get seven minutes of pain so I'm kind of doing more of a fun type of rowing at the moment I don't know if there is a fun type of rowing but okay I don't think think there is
1: either
3: (laughs) (laughs) guys thank you you so much (laughs) for speaking to us today and um, best of luck with the school term and everything that that brings as well as the next expedition Steve thanks you too
1: (laughs) bye so I don't know about you but I had a couple of takeaways from that firstly that Cornwall has got a hell of a lot to answer for when it comes to <laughs> GB Olympic success. And In interestingly, you know, coming from, you've got nothing against Cornwall, but perhaps coming out of Cornwall, having an opportunity and really pouncing on that and making the most of it, uh, something I can certainly relate to. And so, yeah, get on you, Cornwall, pint of tenners and all the rest of it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You're going to regret that. You're <laughs> gonna visit Cornwall.co.uk, I'll we'll be in touch soon. Oh, that's all right. There's um, nothing wrong with that point. Mike, no, I haven't finished yet. Oh,
1: Sorry, I haven't finished yet. Um one <laughs> other more. one other one one <laughs> other comment. I mean, holy crap. Steve talking thinks he can talk down a tarantula. Is it a friendly tarantula or not? Mm, I he call. can read I body think...
3: language, that man. He can do all sorts.
1: I don't that scared the crap out of me. So anyway, get <laughs> on good on you, Steve.
3: Um, I think my biggest takeaway from that was the fact that there are these two super high performing people um, who obviously are brilliant at what they do in their own respective ways and having to make it work together with a young family Um, and still occasionally they they fuck it up frankly because that is not that is really good for someone like me to hear are
1: we allowed to swear on this podcast we we, we
3: just did so I guess we can but I think I think the thing is is that you don't expect you expect them both to be absolutely (coughs) perfect and the reality is is different is for everybody you know there will be chinks in all armors so I think it's quite refreshing to hear that she's absolutely terrible when it comes to planning
1: no absolutely. none of us are perfect but it's about (laughs) focusing on what counts right
3: Um, thank you everybody for joining us whether you've been watching or listening to uh, today's performance people we've been Ben and Georgie Ainsley and uh, remember from what we've learned today take the time you have there you go
0: very good